Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, and on Saga 960 AM out of Ontario, Canada. Our website is consumerchoiceradio.com. You can find our podcast feed there, our previous interviews on video, and much more. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, nursing something nasty in my throat and nose. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, up there in Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going. It's going. I uh, luckily do not have a cold like you do, but, uh, you know, just keep on keeping on. Just trying to stay positive. Um, that slow fear that this is never going to end. This is starting to creep in. But uh, you know what? We're, we're holding our heads high and we're going to power through. So we're now at, uh, at least in Austria, continued lockdown until May 2nd. Oof. I have still not have not had a haircut since December. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been able to go to the squash court in over no. a year. I, I, a friend asked me if I'm able to play basketball inside. I said, well, obviously no, but I no. could take my ball down to the court at the park and do it there. But uh, then again, there was snow yesterday and yeah. it's very cold. Uh, I'm trying to th- think of all the other things, not being able to see family, uh, I mean, not being able to go to restaurants. I'd love to go out and get some beautiful sushi. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't Ooh. been able to do that. I mean, I, I think the list goes on. Uh, hopefully when we're able to fly over to North Carolina and visit my family where things are a bit freer, uh, we'll be able to actually enjoy some of these things. And I might have to, I haven't been able to go to the gym either. Which, yeah. Uh, th- thankfully, this is radio. Because <laughs> you could see that. Yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the clothes get a little tighter. You're wearing sweatpants at all times. <laughs> no, only only after 4 p.m. Uh, okay. So, so David, uh, we've had a, a pretty good couple of weeks. Uh, great listener numbers. A lot more people tuning in here on Saga 960 and uh, on the Big Talker. It's uh, it's very difficult at times. Not many people will realize this to do a, a North American, uh, internationally syndicated show. We're we're trying to talk to essentially three or four different audiences and uh, Mm -hmm. trying to get the news and figure out stuff that jives with everyone. And uh, I think the the story that you brought us here uh, is probably going to be an interesting one. uh, Yes. We'll mix with two. Real quick, though, for the next segment, we will be speaking with Jennifer Huddleston. Uh, She's of the American Action Forum. She knows everything about technology policy, and we'll talk a little bit about Um, companies and data leaks and privacy policies and what federal regulation should be. Uh, So check for that segment two after the break. Uh, But David, first, you got something that uh, has really been riling you up. You've been thinking about it. You've been talking about it. And I think it's a perfect kind of synergy between uh, what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in Canada Mm -hmm. and everything else. So uh, you you let it unfurl, boy. Yeah. So... This week, um, Jake Tapper and CNN did a whole segment on Canada's failure to procure and distribute vaccines and keep the virus at bay. And wow, the response on Twitter was um, vitriolic. You would think that Jake Tapper was some alt-right bozo based on how liberal Twitter reacted. You think he was trying to storm Parliament Hill? <laughs> oh my goodness! He is public enemy number one for liberal Twitter in Canada, which 
um, is basically like a mirror image of Trump Twitter, where it doesn't matter what the what the leader does, we cannot question him, and everything he does is by default good because it's him, um, and it's just it's been hilarious. I mean. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that we have a clip to play, so let's play that, and then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on just how insane this is getting. Some bad news for our, for our neighbors north and our world lead. Canada is now outpacing the United States in terms of coronavirus cases per capita. This is a concerning uptick, considering that the Canadian vaccine rollout is not going well at all. By comparison, in the U.S., more than one in three Americans have gotten at least their first shot in Canada Fewer than one in five received their first shot. CNN's Paula Newton now finds out what's causing Canada's vaccine drought. Oh, my God, it's a drought, David. That's that's uh, sinister. And do you want to play the last part of that? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the filler is that they basically outline what's going on in Canada and give some background on what our numbers are. And then he concludes with this epic statement. For decades on the vaccine roll. Yeah, it's a real failure by the Trudeau government and our Canadian cousins deserve a lot better. Paula, thank you so much for that. Appreciate your... Oh, sounds like he's got a half-hearted endorsement uh, for the opposition, <laughs> David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so, I mean, that made it all the way to the floor um, of the House. And... Uh, it was brought up in question period, and basically Trudeau disputed, saying that CNN didn't have its facts straight. Um, uh, and then, of which, of course, as Jake Tapper does, um, the respondent basically saying, "Well, what did we get wrong?" And the answer is, of course, nothing. They didn't get anything wrong. They what they reported were the facts on our vaccine rollout, which has been junk, and. The response on Twitter, I mean, has been hilarious. So people are just jumping all over the figures and being like, well, we're actually third in, and then they use this category of countries. But at the end of the day, we're, we're in the like mid-30s internationally, and we're in the 50s. Um, sorry, we're in the mid-30s on first doses, and we're in the 50s in regards to fully vaccinated. And so uh, there are so many countries who are outperforming us, countries that have no business outperforming us, like Serbia, Malta, Chile, Morocco, Singapore. Like those, those are all fine countries, but we're the 10th most developed and powerful economy in the world. We deserve better than being 50th in the world in terms of those, the percentage of the population who are fully vaccinated. Um, and it's just, I mean, the response on Twitter was crazy. People are all over the place saying, well, you can't count fully vaccinated because what does that really even mean? And it's like, guys, that means that the pandemic is over. Um, once you get to a certain point, that means the pandemic is over. That's a very important number. Then some are pointing out that some of these countries who are outperforming us have the Russian or Chinese vaccine. And my response is, so who cares? Obviously it works. Um, I mean, the, and, and the, irony, the, the irony there is that the Trudeau government initially 
made their first procurement deal with a vaccine that was made in China. So they don't have any issue with the Chinese vaccine um, because they were originally going to procure that, but didn't because of geopolitical issues and it being blocked. And so, um, as you can tell, this gets me pretty fired up. And I think it gets many Canadians fired up as soon as you have a major American television station that reports on one particular political party uh, in a very negative light. And uh, that's one thing that I found very interesting, David, is that all of a sudden, Jake Tapper is kind of thrown into the political mix, and the Conservative Party of Canada is uh, singing his tune and being like, look at this great report by CNN, you know, stalwart reporter Jake Tapper. And uh, then he comes out, uh, I guess somebody, somebody did some research about Mulroney's decisions back in the day. I, I didn't know exactly what he's referring to. Maybe you do. But uh, he's trying not to be a political pawn. But uh, unfortunately, that's kind of what happens when you're a big American broadcast star. I mean, there are probably more people who watch Jake Tapper on television than exist in Canada. So he's, he's someone uh, fairly well known. And I guess that that does carry some weight uh, when you're talking about the Canadian political context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the big the big factor here is I think more people probably watch CNN nightly news than watch the national. Yeah, that Canada. makes sense. Um, just by virtue of the, the media overlap between the two countries. Um, so Jake Tapper probably has more reach to Canadians than Rosemary Barton on CBC. Wow. Yeah, that, that stuff is, is just really interesting to see how this is kind of working between television and I don't even know the rankings anymore of the major uh, cable stations. Uh, I don't really watch any of these. If I do, it's just on YouTube clips like we just played before. So it's really interesting to see how that continues to still dominate a lot of the political goings and back and forth. I think it's it's kind of uh, the fact that it would take this for you know such a huge response in government. And we talked about this before. A lot of Americans won't recognize it, but it was it was really interesting to hear the Trudeau response. And of course, he does it all in French, so that uh, you only hear the translator if you're trying to listen in English. Uh, so you'll never hear him directly saying anything on this. It'll just be a via the voice of the translator, at least if you're listening in English. Always a great little uh, little trick there played by uh, francophones. I like that. Maybe I should start doing that on this show, David. If I have something to say to you, I would just say it in French and have someone <laughs> just dub... We'll get Bill Vietz to uh, dub it in some way with his English accent. <laughs> Yeah, whenever whenever you get a question you don't like or you don't really want to answer, you just answer it in French. French, so I have no idea. That, what you're yeah, I have about. seen it. I'm, I know that you've done press <laughs> conferences, and there have been questions in French. And I, I think on the video, I saw your eyes light up, and you're like, "Ah, oh, we'll, we'll get this guy to answer that one." <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, you can't really do that in the U.S. Though I, I would, I would be very partial to that. Um, perhaps if you are speaking Spanish, though, um, that that could be a situation that that happens a lot. Uh, particularly in Florida. I did see, yeah, I have seen Jeb do that before where he's taken, um, I don't know if it was Spanish language media questions and responded in Spanish. Um, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool when he did it because it just showed that he could speak to a predominant population in the United States in their native language. Well, definitely Rubio Rubio does that all the time. Uh, they just all yes. hate Marco Rubio. So they, it's never seen as like a <laughs> virtue. He's like, 
oh, now he's he's talking this up in Spanish now. Because uh, at least in the, the Latin American press, particularly broadcasting, um, at least in America, is, is pretty left of center, which is very strange because broadcast media in the rest of Latin America is, is pretty much center-right. You can call them corporatist, capitalist. These are the people the Venezuelans okay. really hate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's... There's a, a lot with uh, Marco Rubio. I'm sure we can mention his comments uh, related to tech. Uh, he tried to, I don't know if you saw this, by the way, he tried to endorse the Amazon unionization vote. Did you see that at all? I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, weird, um, weird, but it's like the emergence of this like new populist non-conservative Republican Party and, and Marco Rubio is kind of just like melting into the mold slowly but surely. Um, so for those who don't know, there was a huge vote at an Amazon plant in um, in Alabama over union, union membership and essentially workers decided to vote no and didn't want a union for some pretty good reasons. I mean, the the pay in which they get at uh, Amazon there is about double the state minimum wage. And so I think a lot of people just looked at the prospect of unionization and just said, well, you're just going to take money off my paycheck. Um, I get paid well. I, I don't mind this job. It pays better than the competitors. Uh, so maybe let's not sour this relationship with the union. And so they, they voted against it, but became highly politicized. Biden weighed in on it. Rubio weighed in on it. Bernie Sanders, of course, weighed in on it. I'm pretty sure he went to Alabama. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, they voted against unionization. Um, big news. And we'll see how that plays out. Um, see how that plays out in other labor discussions between Amazon and, and for the populist thing. I was just listening to a podcast on Theodore Roosevelt, TR, uh, sort of the modern um, trust buster, at least in, in our historical narrative. Um, probably something for these uh, for these Republicans and GOP guys to think about. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a lot more in our next segment. Uh, coming up with Jennifer Huddleston, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. If, you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway, I want to get things done. If you, I want to get them done. The um, best way to get something done. If it holds near and dear to you that you... Uh, anyway, I want to get things done. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM out of Ontario, Canada. We're speaking with Jennifer Huddleston. She's the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the radio program. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to point many of our listeners uh, to a paper that you wrote last year and I thought was very prescient because we are talking about the various leaks, the data hacks, I mean, all these things that are coming in the news. Every day we hear about hundreds of millions of accounts or hundreds of accounts and all this issue with consumer and data privacy. And there are a lot of people who've discussed the need for a federal bill or some kind of privacy law. I know that various states have different versions uh, but what is your kind of take on some of these leaks and hacks 
and uh, what the law should kind of be about that. I want to start off by saying there is a difference between when we're talking about data breach and the laws that govern that element of some of these news stories we may have heard, as well as when we're talking about broader data privacy questions. So oftentimes when we're talking about data breaches or, or hacks, we, we may be talking about where state level data breach law applies, in which case all 50 states have their own data breach law, which is each one of which is a little bit different in terms of the information it covers, the amount of time you have to notify those impacted, how you were supposed to notify people, um, you know, what, what is and isn't considered a breach. And then we also have the FTC who is engaged in both data breach enforcement as well as data security enforcement and data privacy enforcement from a consumer protection point of view. There are also questions about data privacy in the sense of some people are asking, are there certain types of data that we should have more limits on companies collecting at all or what they can do with that data um, once they have it? And that's where we see a lot of conversations around, for example, the European General Data Protection Rule, GDPR, or California's Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, and whether or not there also needs to be any kind of federal law addressing kind of data rights or, or data privacy as well. So on the question of, of data breaches, um, I know that often in the financial sector, whenever there are um, issues, some of the grievances that we have is that a company will have to pay a fine, but that fine goes to the regulator rather than being redistributed, uh, redistributed to the people who were impacted. Um, is there any framework in the United States or elsewhere maybe where consumers are, are properly, um, let's say compensated for any of the violations that may occur? In some ways, these are questions that occur around what is the appropriate way to enforce these laws if there is a violation that has occurred and we found that a company was in uh, what was guilty of that violation, whether it's a data privacy violation or a um, data breach violation. We've seen in some cases where companies after a breach will offer things like credit monitoring as part of a settlement, um, or there will be some other element that does attempt to, to make consumers whole. But there are a lot of questions about what it would mean for the market if there was a shift in how these laws were enforced. So right now, we largely have government enforcement in the US by the FTC, where the FTC will either bring a case against a company um, for consumer harm when it comes to data privacy, or they will enter into a consent decree or, or a settlement with the company rather than taking that case to trial. In some other cases, though, people have advocated for a private right of action, the, the right of class action lawsuits or of individual plaintiffs who feel that they have been harmed to bring a case against these companies. There are a lot of concerns about what that could do given the cost of litigation and particularly in the United States, given the fact that you can bring a case that gets lost and the company still has to bear the, the cost of that litigation, even if it's later vindicated in court that it was completely innocent. 
We can think about how with large companies, the cost of compliance and the potential costs associated with litigation can get quite high if you're talking about a, a, one of the big tech companies, we can certainly imagine that there would be potentially a, a lot of people trying to sue them for things that might not have actually been violations in hopes of a, a potential settlement. However, for smaller companies, this can be particularly concerning given that, as I mentioned, even if a company is vindicated in, in court and proven that there wasn't any violations, the cost of that litigation can be something that could be potentially business ending, particularly if they were, were completely innocent. We're speaking with Jennifer Huddleston of the American Action Forum. You can follow her on Twitter at JRHuddles. Uh, that's a great, uh, great Twitter handle there. Uh, one question I had, Jennifer, that you mentioned in your research, and we'll link to this. Um, this is specifically a primer on data privacy enforcement options, and uh, you leave no stone unturned. One thing you mentioned is the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. I think uh, some of us who uh, bounce between Europe and the United States are definitely familiar with this, and you know VPNs are our best friend for that very reason. Uh, but what are some of the problematic aspects of of that particular rule, and is is that something that perhaps American regulators should emulate in any way, or, or should they run away from it? Looking at GDPR, we can see some of the unintended consequences that can come from heavy-handed privacy regulation. Now, there certainly are cases where we definitely want to value privacy, but we can't pretend that data privacy does not exist without trade-offs, whether it's trade-offs to potentially innovative uses of data, whether it's potential trade-offs to, to speech. And what's interesting is now, a little over two years out from the GDPR, we're starting to be able to observe some of the real consequences of what this type of regulation could do. So we've seen, in many cases, a decrease in investment in startups and micro companies out of concern of would they be able to cope with the compliance costs associated with GDPR. We've also seen in some cases where companies have chosen to pull out of the European market. And the question is, what does that mean? So at the start, there were several US newspapers like the LA Times that were not available in Europe if you, you know, like you were saying, bouncing back and forth between the states and Europe, because they didn't find that the cost of complying with GDPR was worth it for, for them, for given their um, size in the market. We also have seen questions about does this actually improve privacy or does it just kind of change where some of the concerns are. So, for example, there was a researcher who using GDPR request with his then fiance's permission was able to get a good bit of her information from various companies with very little verification by just by submitting GDPR requests. Similarly, I think we've all seen those, those cookie pop-ups and, and the question of does clicking yes or no actually change your privacy preference in any, in any way, or does it just give us that additional friction when trying to, to use the service that we want it? And I think when we're talking about privacy, that's what's really important to recognize is that there are a wide range of privacy preferences that we have. All of us, you know, on this show, everyone listening probably has different information that they they personally 
find more sensitive. And so when we're talking about whether privacy regulation is appropriate, we really want to look at are there areas where we generally agree there is a more significant risk in this data such that maybe we're willing to make those trade-offs uh, that may make it more difficult for innovation or may make it more difficult for, for certain information to be shared. And, and on that note, I mean, one issue that, that we've written about um, in terms of the sharing of that information was, uh, I know one, one case in Europe from July um, where there were questions of whether or not it would be legal for multi, multinational uh, entities to transfer data from the EU to the United States over private, privacy concerns. Um, and that created or, or, or would create effectively data silos. Have you looked into what the, the impact of data silos are or the kind of restrictions um, and, and segregated impact that may have on global commerce or anything along those lines? I've looked a little bit into data localization requirements. It's not an area that I, I've done a lot of work on, but I think one thing to recognize is one of the big benefits of the internet is the ability to share information uh, across borders. And that includes data. And when you're talking about multinational companies, they're often working in, in several different environments at once. And it may not be practical to have kind of data localization requirements that require that they store the data in the country that it was originally collected and or in the the kind you know you could see this occurring at an even more local level but i think the other element there is that we continue to have a debate about you know what are the impact of these european regulations on American tech companies and on American consumers. In some cases, we've seen kind of GDPR become the default when it comes to data privacy, as opposed to the more light touch American approach that really allowed a lot of innovation to flourish and a lot of tech companies to emerge with minimal barriers and really serve consumers with products that they wanted. And I definitely have appreciated a lot of your research into this topic. It's, it's definitely helped us approach this and, and figure out how consumers can be served best uh, by your system. And I definitely do want to praise Jennifer, your research on e-scooters, um, as you're one of the pioneers there in, in, in good academic writing on that. Uh, what other kind of research are you working on that our listeners should know about? It's certainly an interesting time to be working in tech policy because we have a lot of really exciting things, whether it's e-scooters or autonomous vehicles or even just the ways we've been able to connect during the pandemic. I think many of us have started to really recognize the benefits of technology as we've been working from home for a year now and over a year now and have been able to stay connected with friends and family in ways that a decade ago wouldn't have been able to. At the same time, we're seeing this kind of tech lash of a lot of policymakers and pundits kind of skeptical of tech companies and particularly of some of the, the larger tech companies when it comes to things like calls to break up big tech or calls about reforming Section 230 or, or changing content moderation rules. So I've done a lot of writing about why the principled approach to technology and why continuing the light touch regulatory approach as opposed to more heavy handed intervention into the technology market 
helps support innovation and helps us get the the kind of next generation of innovation and the next disruptor and that next great idea that we often can't predict. And so we really want to continue to create a system that allows new entry into this market and supports, you know, disruption that we could never predict rather than accidentally locking in existing giants through heavy handed regulation. And if I could ask one question on on the tech lash, where do you see the, the greatest threat? Is it via the courts? Is it via Congress and legislators? Is it, you know, just new competition? Where do you kind of see the progenitors of this tech lash? And what should we really be most concerned about? I think we've seen some very interesting things recently. Um, we are seeing a lot of congressional debate over what the appropriate use of and legal framework for antitrust is. And that's certainly concerning because changing antitrust away from a consumer welfare model would impact not only the technology sector, but far more than, than um, just that sector. It could impact nearly every sector of the economy. We're also seeing a lot of disruption in the states in terms of attempts to regulate different elements of the internet. I mentioned earlier California's Consumer Privacy Act. Um, we've also seen state level law legislation proposed um, regarding online content moderation. California also has a net neutrality law. We've seen various states propose different app store regulations. And what's really concerning there is you have the potential for a patchwork to emerge that could really disrupt innovation by not allowing the, the same product to be easily available across state lines and really interfere with potentially with interstate commerce and the development of, of new products. We've been speaking with Jennifer Huddleston, Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio on Saga 960 in the Peel region, Ontario, and on the Big Talker FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Yael, we just had a great chat with um, a great chat um, in regards to privacy and, and all sorts of tech policy and how that impacts consumers. Um, do you see this as, as being kind of one of the next frontiers of political discussion? So we talked a lot about antitrust and it kind of feels like consumer privacy is going to be um, that one of the next big issues um, to, to kind of dominate the political discussion. Yeah, and I think if we, if we kind of go back in time and we talked a, a little bit about this in the first segment, you know, related to technology and particularly the role of the the Republican Party, the GOP, and how they would like to approach this stuff, uh, they're going full anti-corporate, uh, more so for, quote, woke reasons. Uh, but then you have uh, many on the left in the Democratic Party who are always anti-corporate, except when they're not, like when they have their campaigns funded. Uh, but they're going anti-corporate when it comes to things like labor relations, like Amazon and everything else. And it is true that essentially people see technology companies, big tech, consumer privacy, all this stuff, they see it as a way that they can kind of attack something that they don't control. And for them, all they see is just large barrels of money, you know, being rolled down the street, and they don't have a part of that. They don't have a cut. And I think probably privacy might be one that they're going to use. Um, fortunately, there are many companies that 
are very, very conscious about privacy. They make it an entire part of what they do. I mean, there are companies like ProtonMail and various VPN companies, uh, but also Apple is very good at doing that. They hold, you know, privacy and their encryption and, and their own models. Uh, but, you know, this isn't going to stop governments. I actually read that in uh, Germany this week, uh, the authorities there are trying to go after Facebook for encrypted uh, WhatsApp messages. So they want to make it illegal to have encryption on uh, particularly WhatsApp messages, uh, which is what a lot of people in Europe use to communicate. And it's something that governments are, are requiring and asking. And uh, one, one piece that I you know had published this week is all about the, the data and consumer privacy question. And the one about encryption is, is one that I find really creepy. And unfortunately, you do have members of the left and right who are jumping on the bandwagon of trying to ban encryption. They don't like the idea that people are using encrypted encrypted or encryption for their own purposes, whether it be for you know their own messages to people, whether it be for these messaging apps or even Bitcoin, whatever it might be. And uh, they seek to ban it. You know, there is a bill that is in the Senate. The head of the FBI has said we need to ban encryption and catch terrorists and white supremacists and all this. And this stuff is, I think, very scary. There's obviously an angle by people who are, are just in it for the political clout, uh, the Josh Hawleys and the Ted Cruz's and the like. Uh, but this is the kind of stuff that impacts regular people, people listening to this program, people who might be tuned in, and uh, they are privacy conscious in their own lives. Uh, governments are trying to nudge their way, and they want to have control too. And I, I think that's definitely something to be concerned about. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm trying to think, I think Apple a while back did some good promotion and advertising on, uh, on the importance of privacy. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, that's good. It's nice to see some companies trying to leverage um, consumer privacy as like a, as a selling feature. Uh, I think one of the most, uh, the, the best commercial I saw were, was, was two gentlemen, they're in a restaurant. Remember those days, Yael? Uh, yeah, so long ago. <laughs> um, For me, by the way, that was September. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're in a restaurant. They're sitting there and they're having a conversation. And they look like very engaged in the conversation. And the server walks over to take their order and they stop talking, obviously, because they don't need, her, they don't need the server to hear the conversation. And so then they she takes our order and she walks away and then they continue back in the conversation and then it cuts to the Apple logo. And it's like, privacy is important in your personal life. It should be important for your phone. I love that. Um, so it was a pretty, yeah, it was pretty cool. Like, Oh, okay, nice. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, so it, it, hopefully we'll see more, um, more businesses hop on the privacy bandwagon. Um, rather than give in to the government um, and some of the pressures there to eliminate privacy protections and things like that. And the thing that we kind of got to mention there with Jennifer in our last segment is is just how much many of the regulations apply and, and what they really do. And the European regulations, GDPR as it's called, yeah, it really does make it hard to, if you're an American company or even a Canadian company, or basically any company apart from a European one, to service any consumers at all in Europe. 
it means that you need to comply with additional rules and regulations. You have to be sure that you keep this data in some separate server in order to just send someone a newsletter <laughs> who happens to be based in Belgium or Italy. And it's this kind of ridiculousness that has led a lot of websites to leave uh, serving European customers. And I would fear that that would be kind of what would happen if, if you know, California's laws get any more stringent or New York or anything like that. I mean, that's the entire point of the internet is that we're able to talk globally. We're able to meet globally. We're able to have all kinds of information. It's not limited to borders, but more and more we are seeing segmentations like that. And uh, David, one topic I'd love to get into at some point is, and I'm starting to research it, just the amount of, of restrictions on things like online gambling that relate to uh, your precise location mm -hmm. where your computer is. And I'm seeing it more and more with many uh, cryptocurrency exchanges too, where some services are not available to Americans or some services are only available to Canadians or you know Europeans or vice versa. Uh, there's a lot of this that I think is, is getting very problematic because we're dealing with an online global marketplace. You know, these people need to suck it up. This is the future. Well, I mean, so many of these rules are just so outdated. Like, I, I mean, this radio show is kind of a testament to that. We have two guys who, one who, of whom is in Canada, the other one whom is in Europe, broadcasting on a radio show in two cities that we don't live in. Um, it just is like, a, it, it highlights the fact that all of these rules and regulations that are defined by national boundaries become less and less relevant or um, become easier to avoid and evade as the world becomes more digital and more interconnected. And so, it's uh, we need someone in government to, to realize that and then just get out of the way in, in many of these instances, because whether it's geo blocking or access to a gambling website or all sorts of other um, things that are often restricted based on location, it just seems so redundant. And at the end of the day, the important thing to remember here is, especially for things like gambling, the black market doesn't care. They're not going to restrict you based on your location. And so there's other illegal means to kind of the, the, the jump in and fill that void yeah. anyway. Yeah, and then we all start gambling uh, in the, the British then, Virgin Islands or, you know, Iran or, yeah. you know, who knows <laughs> at that point. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah exactly. This kind of thing, the internationalization of particularly our online global marketplace is something that is, is very fascinating. And, and definitely I, I mentioned cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin a few times, but these things are going to facilitate it a lot more. And it's really going to be up mm -hmm. to, to governments to come up with smart rules to understand how to better serve this and not necessarily in a way to restrict it. I know there was an argument a long time about whether online firms needed to pay a sales tax. Uh, that, that was a, sort of a a hard-fought battle of like the last six years or something. Now most most retailers that sell online are charging sales tax in, in the U.S. I know that was a big deal for a while, but, you know, for a long time, the idea mm -hmm. was, well, we don't have a brick-and-mortar store. We're selling directly online. There's no reason to pay sales tax. I probably agreed with that. Regardless, times have changed. Sales tax on everything that we order online. 
Uh, but you know, there have to there have to be ways that we figure out how to do things a bit in the future. And we talked about Ireland last week and its huge advantage when it comes to corporate taxes. Uh, you know, these loopholes are going to be created, and uh, people are going to come up with better and better solutions. And uh, guess what? Uh, the governments that figure out how to cater to those and to make sure that they provide good, clear rules and incentives. Um, who knows, David? We might just all be citizens of Estonia in the next decade. Because they seem <laughs> yeah, to have their exactly. things together. There's a real, yeah, there's a real first mover um, advantage there. Or if you can get there first and set up clear, concise rules first, you may attract a lot of capital and a lot of That's business. That's true. So, um, I do want to shift gears to one thing that is relevant to Ontario. Um, so for those who are listening in, on Saga 960, the beer store, everyone's spot to get beer in Ontario. Uh, so news broke last week that the beer stores lost something like $100 million dollars over the last three years. Um, so they are hemorrhaging cash. And one thing I've been working on is writing about this saying, you know what, now it's time to just put the beer store out of its misery. There's no point protecting it anymore. Um, for those who don't know, the beer store has a government protected private monopoly on the sale of beer uh, or near monopoly on the sale of beer. And so uh, I think now is the time to just let the beer store go off into the sunset, um, expand uh, alcohol sale to the, to more grocery stores, to convenience stores and corner stores and gas stations like most places in the United States or pretty much all of Europe, um, and just get rid of this old relic of prohibition. Um, so fingers crossed that this may be the beginning of the end of the archaic model that is the, the beer walls store. are closing in on the beer store. This is the beginning of the <laughs> end. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that that's a great battle. I know that you've been waging in Ontario for a long time. Um, it's something that many people who, you know, have not traveled outside of the province, you know, just would even think about. And uh, I think that's a, a good benefit of, of global travel when we're able to do it. Mm. Um, that you are able to see the, the comparison between how you get consumer products in various areas, the prices, whether it's a state monopoly. Uh, I mean, growing up in, in North Carolina, I saw the ABC store and I was like, oh, okay, I guess the government just sells liquor. I guess that's just their business. That's what they do. And then you go to other states, you go to Florida, and they have drive through liquor stores that are privately owned. It's like, oh, okay, this is very interesting. This is different. Then you go to Europe and you can pick it yeah. up at the grocery store. It's like, okay, well, something's definitely going on here. Uh, so that it's a it's a very important battle in Ontario. I know sometimes, David, we get criticism as to why we focus on this stuff when there's you know huge things happening at the border and international trade and uh, you know the going ons of, of daily pol political stuff. Uh, but this is the kind of stuff that matters for people's wallets. It's what they spend money on. It's important when it comes to corruption of the public and the public purse. I mean, there's a lot of issues that mm -hmm. are brought up here. It's not just about, you know, getting that spike seltzer. And um, speaking of that, I will miss the spike seltzer festival in Charlotte in June, which I'm very upset about. But yeah. Well, so it's one of those things where you have to fight against it because if you don't, it'll be 90 years before change is made. And that's how long the beer store has operated. Um, 
or actually it's going, it's close, closer to a hundred years um, with this near monopoly. And so if you don't push back against this stuff when it's first implemented, which is why we did on cannabis retail in Ontario, when that, when that decision was reviewed, um, you end up having this archaic policy outlive you <laughs> and, and last longer than you, you do. Um, so it's really important to get this changed um, on the hard seltzer note. White Claw's coming out with a, a new surge, 8%. Oh, you bet I, you bet I saw uh, that. You bet I put, I put that in my <laughs> notes. That's the first thing I buy when I get off the plane. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where can I get this and, and what, where can I get this and how much, how much is it? Nah, never mind. It doesn't matter. Well, David, I'll, anyway. I'll throw you some over the border fence. Uh, we'll have a good time there. Uh, but yeah, David, was a pleasure. Great show. Uh, awesome to talk to you guys. Uh, look forward to next week. Yeah, yeah. Great show. We'll talk to you. Talk to you soon. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.